So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are really, really lucky to be joined by Timothy Fry, who is the Marshall Shulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy at Columbia University. And welcome to the show, Professor Fry. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. Well, this is exciting. So I guess let me just jump right in. Um, what, what do you think is the, the thing that most observers, whether casual or academic observers, um, get wrong about Russia today? Well, the first thing is that it's hard to be an autocrat. I think most people feel that because you have so much power concentrated in the hands of a single individual, that they can just order people around and that people willingly follow their orders, uh, salute and go on their way and things get done. Uh, when actually it's much more complicated. If we think about Putin, he governs a country of 11 time zones with more than 140 million people in a, in a complex urban society with powerful regional actors and uh, powerful business people. And he does use repression sometimes to get people to do things, but also he must bribe them at times, persuade them at times. And at times he has to deliver good performance in order to keep people following him. So the, I think the, the general view is that uh, Russia's politics revolve around a single individual. And if only we could get inside Putin's brain uh, and understand what he really thinks, then we would understand <laughs> Russian politics. But what's really happening is much more complicated process of building coalitions, of trying to win friends and trying to um, uh, hold power in a system where I'm sure a lot of people would like to be the autocrat. Yeah, in fact, the, the book that I, I just finished your book, it's fantastic. It's called Weak Strongman. And that's, yeah, that's the thesis that we shouldn't be paying so much to Putinology, but we should really be paying attention to, you know, sort of how, how difficult it is for him to balance all of the interests. So I guess maybe we could start with um, your job as a, a political scientist. A lot of my students, um, my 12th grade students in particular, are interested in political science. And I wonder what what advantages does being a political scientist give you, I guess, if any, in trying to understand what's going on in Russia today? Sure. Well, there's a saying that uh, economists have the best tools in the social sciences, but political science has the best questions. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we study things like why countries are democracies and why they're not. Uh, how do public goods get provided? Um, why do some countries grow and some countries uh, uh, decline? Um, how do countries stay at peace rather than ending up in war? So those are pretty big, meaty, important questions. Mm -hmm. We've made progress on some, uh, uh, not so much on others, uh, but they're really worth your time and effort uh, uh, to study. And I, I have a lot of co-authors who are uh, economists, and uh, there is an overlap of interests that is that has been a really productive part of the discipline. And there's even been a historic turn in the last decade or so, which looks at long-run political and economic developments 
And it uh, tries to apply a lot of the latest tools we have um, in statistics and big data to study historical events as well. So it's a very exciting time to be in political science. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate so much about your book was the data. You, you're not so much interested in sort of this, the Russian soul, I guess, or um, whether or not, um, I, mean, I guess it's important that Putin was a KGB operative, but you know, you make the point in your book that he sort of uses that, that mythology to his advantage. But I'm wondering, one, what data we, we wanna pay attention to coming from Russia, and two, how much we can trust the data. So I would say until the war began, uh, you could do very reliable public opinion surveys in Russia on a broad range of political questions. My colleagues and I tried to figure out, for example, whether or not respondents were lying when they were asked about Putin's approval rating. You know, it is an autocracy. There are reason to think that people might be reluctant to express displeasure with the government. But we used a, a technique that's been commonly used to set, study sensitive topics. And we found that uh, people were not lying when they, asked, when they were asked even this sensitive question. Uh, Russia has pretty good administrative data. You know, the legacy of the Soviet system was that they counted everything. Uh, and uh, they continued to do so in the post-Soviet period. And, you know, Russia is a well-educated country. So um, when there are attempts to try to fudge the data, there are a lot of smart academics and observers and people in business who depend on that data who are often able to unravel uh, those attempts to fudge the data. So as far as autocracies go, Russia is a really good one to study because the quality of the data is much better um, than we get in most, in most autocracies. Since the war began, I think it's much more difficult. People are much less um, uh, willing to speak openly and rightly so because they do face an awful um, uh, a lot of negative repercussions uh, should they speak out, particularly on political issues. You know, as a teacher, I, I would like to think that um, the more education we give people, the more education we provide as, as a society, the better we are um, withstanding um, the pressures of autocracy and, and anti-democratic actors. But one of the things as I was preparing for this interview that I, I found in the paper that you wrote, it's a few years old now, but you and your co-authors argue that he's, Putin's approval rating is regularly above 80% in, in a really highly educated country. How do you make how do you make sense of that? So great question. So uh, Putin's popularity ratings over the last 20 years have largely been driven by the same factors that drive presidential approval in lots of countries. In his first 10 years in office, the size of the economy doubled and living standards soared. And it was no surprise that his approval ratings were up in the 70s. Uh, they started to dip down as the economy slowed after, two, after the, the financial crisis of 2008-09. And then uh, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, they shot up again. This was a very popular move that brought uh, territory back to Russia uh, on an issue that was emotionally important for a lot of Russians. 
Um, since then, as the economy has slowed, his, his approval ratings have gone down. And uh, now they're at about 60%, which is still you know, pretty good. But you have to remember, uh, he also controls the media. So you know, 90% of Russians' main choice of media comes from state-controlled sources. So that makes it easier for him to paint a rosy picture that uh, increases his approval ratings. We also see if we look at individual level data that more educated Russians tend to give Putin lower approval ratings mm -hmm. than less educated Russians. And that's true in lots of autocracies as well. So often we see that the social base for autocracy is um, the poor, less well-educated, uh, often rural sector and older sector of the population. And we see that that's true in Russia as well. I read a, a review um, that you wrote about um, uh, the power of organized labor in Russia today. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, how strong is organized labor and how, how much does Putin have to, have to listen to them? So organized labor is not very organized. Um, uh, the union density and union strength are not very great. Um, at the same time, Putin has always been very concerned about his approval ratings. And the two biggest negative shocks to his approval ratings were when he tried to conduct pension reform uh, in 2005 and in 2018. And in both cases, his approval ratings took big hits. Uh, and when he is faced with uh, labor strikes, he's often very willing to meet labor's demands in mm. hopes of preventing the strike from spreading further. So it's almost as if Putin is anticipating uh, that labor could be a problem. And if he makes a compromise quickly, then hopefully he can keep mm. this, the, the, the threat contained. So labor does, in a strange way, have some power within Russia. So to understand why he would want to do this pension reform, I mean, that sounds like somebody who is a, an economic liberal. Is that how we can understand his, his economic preferences? So he's evolved a great deal. Uh, in his first three years in office, he conducted a range of liberal economic policies, cutting red tape, uh, conducting tax reform, uh, uh, pension reform, banking reform, which was really sorely needed at the time. And many of the uh, economic liberals in Russia were very happy with what he was doing in his first three years. Then in 2004, it was clear the price of oil was going to remain high and government coffers just filled up with cash. So at, from that point on, it was, it's been easier to rely on natural resource wealth, um, which is heavily taxed by the state. Most of the income that, goes, that comes from natural resources goes back to the state, not to the uh, oil and gas companies. So since 2004, he's relied very heavily on uh, natural resources rather than the liberal economic policies he initially proposed. He's also said something along the lines of um, anybody who doesn't miss the Soviet Union uh, doesn't have a heart. 
-hmm. anybody who wants it back doesn't have a brain. So mm -hmm. he recognizes that the Soviet economic system was not competitive uh, and uh, you know, is not trying to rebuild the Soviet economy, but the state does have a big role in Russia's economy today. So let's say that this war continues to go. I mean, actually, I don't even know if the war is going badly. Let's start there. Is the war going badly for Putin as badly as the, as the New York Times seems to say it is? So it's going much worse than he expected. That's for sure. Uh, the expectation was that they would take Kiev in a week. And that was a view not just that held by Putin and his inner circle. That was also what many people in the U.S. intelligence community uh, believed. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, I think to the surprise of many, uh, Zelensky decided, decided to stay and fight. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ukrainian army has beat back the, the attack on Kiev. And now the war is primarily being fought in the east and, and south, south. And the, the two sides are roughly at a stalemate with each side trying to um, batter the other, but without the ability to deliver a knockout punch. So that's kind of where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that things, well, things get worse for Putin. And, um, and I, maybe you could explain how you think he might be removed from office, if that's even a possibility. But how is the system structured? Would somebody else sort of step into his place and things would continue more or less like normal? Or would you expect that um, because he's such a strong, I, I want to get the, the, the word that you, the, the phrase that you used um, exactly, but it, it's a personalist autocracy. But how is, if he were to somehow disappear, how would Russia look or how would it be governed? That's the, the, the question of all questions. Okay. Uh, he is 70 years old. Um, and mm. uh, there are rumors that his health is uh, not great, although they, we've heard those rumors before. Mm -hmm. we, in political science, we often divide non-democracies into one-party regimes like China and Vietnam or Mexico under the PRI for, for decades military regimes like we saw in Pinochet's Chile or in contemporary Myanmar, and so-called personalist autocracies, countries that are run by a single individual. I see. So when single individual um, um, uh, autocracies, these personalist autocracies, when the leader loses power, it's usually very messy because they have no soft landing pad. They can't retreat to the barracks like a military leader would mm -hmm. or to the party like a, 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 in a one party, a dictatorship. So they tend to fight very hard and they tend to lose power either through coups, uh, mass protests um, or some mixture of the two. So if we look in the post-war era, 70% of the time, these personalist autocrats lose power through these so-called irregular means. And 80% of the time, they end up in exile, in jail, or dead. So uh, I'm sure that Putin mm. knows these numbers as well. So he's not going to give up power easily or willingly. Um, and one of the difficulties in these personalist autocracies is that there's no organization that is really in a position to stand up 
uh, uh, to Putin and try to remove him from power. The party, for example, is not strong enough. There are no strong business organizations or labor organizations that could threaten to remove him from power unless he steps down. So that makes it difficult to remove these personalist autocrats. And what we often see is a situation where a leader is very unpopular, but still very un difficult uh, to remove. And we're not near there yet with Putin mm -hmm. by any stretch. Mm -hmm. the, the majority of Russians still seem to support the war. Um, but the one thing that Putin brought to Russia uh, for the last 20 years is a sense of stability after the 1990s, which were very chaotic as the Yeltsin government dealt with the immediate collapse of the Soviet Union. And by starting this war, he's put all of that hard-earned stability, all of the progress they built in building a market economy uh, and really thrown it out the window. Um, so he's in a very different situation than he's been in any other time uh, in his 22 years in office. And so this will just be the last question um, where are, many of my students are about to graduate. And before they graduate high school, they have to do a kind of a, a thesis defense and they have to defend their best work. And one of the questions that we always ask is, if you had you know, infinite resources and infinite time, <laughs> um, what, would you, what would you like to do with, with your work that you weren't able to do? And I guess the big question is, and this is sort of a tough question, but what are you, what are you not sure about? Things that you argue that you're, you're, you're kind of sure about, but you wish you, you wish you were more sure about? Yeah, this is the, if God was your research assistant <laughs> question, right? right I like right, this. Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, one thing that I have um, uh, revisited because it's been such an important question is whether Putin is actually popular. So, uh, mm -hmm. what would, so we've repeated some of the surveys that we did in 2015 and 2016, where we showed that Russians were answering honestly in these Putin uh, approval questions. We've repeated those questions in 2020 and 2021 as the system was becoming much more repressive. Remember, this was um, the time when Alexei Navalny was poisoned and put in jail. Mm -hmm. So the political situation was becoming much more repressive. And we were unable to um, uh, um, replicate our results. Our results were much more uncertain. We weren't able to show that most Russians were honestly answering the question. We also weren't able to show that there was a lot of lying going on. So something had changed between those two periods and we're trying to figure out what that is. So if God were my research assistant, I would like to give Russians truth serum uh, and answer, ask these <laughs> questions and see if uh, we could really get honest answers.